Amen. If, uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to the text, we're going to be looking at today, it's a familiar passage in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 9. And today we're going to be reading verse 6 and 7 of Isaiah 9 as we continue uh, in this, this sermon series, this six-part series that I started a couple of weeks ago that is simply entitled, you'll see it on the screen in front of you, The Christmas Story. And so my goal in this series is, it really is a, it's the same goal that I think we all should have every Christmas, is to just constantly sort of bring us back to the message of Christmas, what it really is about, with all the counter uh, sort of messages that are out there, particularly around this time of year, uh, to be reminded again what it, what it means that Jesus has come into this world. Now, the text we're looking at today from Isaiah 9 uh, it is one that's familiar to you. And that, that may stand out just a little bit because uh, the first two texts in the series were, they may have been familiar to you, but not for Christmas sermons. I preached uh, on from, from 1 Timothy 1. I preached from Hebrews 4. Uh, especially the Hebrews 4 passage is one you probably know, but I doubt you have ever heard those, those passages used for Christmas, even though they are Christmas passages. And one of the goals I had in using those kind of texts for the Christmas sermon series uh, is that I want to I remind you that this message is, is bigger, that the Christmas story, what it means, is bigger than just the birth narratives. And, and we can find this all over the scriptures. And, and, and we need to constantly be reminded of his coming and what that means. Now, the text today... Uh, is one that you know, but it, it powerfully speaks to what I want to focus on this morning, uh, which is uh, Jesus as our king. So beginning in, in verse 6, the prophet Isaiah writes, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And this is the word of our God. May the Lord bless uh, today the reading and the preaching and the hearing of his word. So um, this is an obvious thing that I'm going to say to you, but, but I'm going to say it this morning for an important reason, which you'll get in just a moment. Uh, we, we live in a, a world of warfare and, and conflict. Right? And, and it really goes without saying to say that, that we live in this kind of world. Now, as I mentioned that, as I say we live in a world of warfare and conflict, your minds probably go uh, to these two really big wars that we're having right now in the world. I mean, to, to what's going on over in the Middle East with Israel and Hamas, to what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. But even as we focus on those wars, wars that have and our attention, the news media's attention is drawn to those things and the, the sort of global implications of those, uh, those aren't the only uh, wars or armed conflicts that are going on in, in our world. This week as I was thinking about this, I decided to go on some, some websites and, and that, that focus specifically on tracking armed conflicts in, in the world and, and not so much the, the big ones that grab our attention, that grab you know, international news and therefore we know about them, but the, the smaller ones where they're, they're actually, they're conflict, they're armed conflicts, they're wars that are happening, they're just smaller, they're regional and so forth or even smaller than that. And, and this one website is, which talks about recent and ongoing wars, if, if these things were, 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 are actually true, it was on this, this this site, which seemed reputable, I promise you, if this is wrong, I did not call the State Department to check on this, but um, if this is right, these, these, these numbers are, are really startling. I want you to listen to, uh, 
to what it says, armed conflicts. They're not, they don't have to be big, they can be small, but they're armed conflicts. According to this site, there are more than 45 armed conflicts in the Middle East and North Africa. There are more than 35 armed conflicts in Sub-Saharan Africa. There are 21 armed conflicts in Asia. There are seven armed conflicts in Europe. And there are six armed conflicts in Latin America. Now, the U.S. isn't mentioned specifically because in, within our borders, of course, we don't have a, any kind of armed conflict like groups of people fighting against others, although we do have all kinds of violence in our nation. And it is also true, and you know this, that because America is a global power, it's involved in a lot of this stuff, and it's certainly involved even behind the scenes in what's happening over in Gaza and what's happening in Ukraine. But all of that brought something to my mind as I, as I started to reflect on this passage. And it's one of the things that Jesus says and when he talks about the last days, and you'll know this text, Matthew 24, 6 and 7. He says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. You know that, that verse? You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And he's speaking of the, the reality of these, these last days, which I think biblically speaking, last days from the coming of Jesus until the end. And he's talking about what this time is, is like, wars and rumors of wars. But do you also know this, that this isn't just something that happened when Jesus came. It's been the reality of the world from the beginning, from the time that Adam and Eve rebelled and Cain killed Abel. We have had hostility, wars, and rumors of wars. That is the world we live in. Thank God we're not in a world war, and I hope and pray that we are not ever in another one of them. But it is certainly true to say to you today that we are a world of war, and we are a world at war, okay? Both of those things are true about the world that we live in. Now, all right, so I've just like brought everybody down. You're probably like, what in the world is he doing with this Christmas message, right? <laughs> the, the reason I begin this way, and, and you may find this a little, bit, a little bit surprising, but it is true, war is actually the setting of the text that we read today. It is the setting. It is the threat of war. And of what is going to happen to Israel, the, 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 the northern kingdom of Assyria is, is threatening them. And the prophet Isaiah responds to this, this threat of war by proclaiming a kingdom of universal peace that comes through, of all people, a child king. It's pretty extraordinary, and it's very different than you and I would probably ever think about this. But through this child king, we find peace. Now, what I want to do with you this morning is I want to show you, just looking at these two verses, some things that Isaiah talks about, about, about this king and about his kingdom. And I want to put the points this way, just to sort of elaborate a little bit through the points in terms of what I want to get at. Let me tell you what they are, and then we'll talk about each as we look at these two verses. The first is this, that he is and, and will be the world's ideal king, okay? This child. He is and will be the world's ideal king. 
And then the second thing is this, that he has inaugurated and will rule over the world's ideal kingdom. Okay? Both of these things are critically important, that he is an ideal king with an ideal kingdom. That word ideal, it has this, this conception of perfection, right? He is the perfect king who will rule over a perfect kingdom. And this, this Christmas, I want to invite you into that kingdom, okay? So let's consider each of these. So the first, again, is that he is and will be the world's ideal king. And so in this passage, there are a couple of places of it that are, are probably really familiar to you that you know, maybe you know from memory. And part of that is what you see in the first part of verse 6 where it says, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is, is given. You'll note the first word there in the English Standard Version is the word for. That word for is a linking word or a connecting word, which basically means that what he's saying here, what Isaiah's prophesying here, actually serves as the, the ground or the reason for the positive things that are said earlier in chapter 9. And so if you go back earlier in chapter 9 and you look, say, say at verse 2. At verse 2, it says again, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now, what that's describing is, is the reality. This darkness is the reality of, of a broken and fallen and war-torn world of sin and evil. This is the darkness that all of humanity, not just Israel, all of humanity finds itself in. The, the land of deep darkness is the reality that all of us at one time find ourselves in. And yet... And this is a great verse we'll talk about and celebrate it on our Christmas Eve candlelighting service that in that darkness, a great light has come. And a great light has shone. And what we see then, if you look at verse 4, is we see that the, the reason for that. It is, it is for or because to us, to us. Now, he's, he's, he's writing to Israel, but I want you to hear this personally to yourself. To us, to you, a child is born. A child is born. Now, the way this is written, translated, and, and, and even what Isaiah intended, it's almost like what he's saying is, is this child is born now. It's already here. And, and, and it, it sort of comes across that way, right? That it's already here. Now remember, this is a prophecy that's ultimately fulfilled when, in, in Jesus Christ some 700 years later. But he's, he's talking about it as if it has happened. Why does he do that? Because he wants those who read it to know. He wants us to know today that this, this is a certitude it has, it, to Israel that it would happen. And for us, we know it has. Not in any, any man, not in the, the, you know, a lot of interpreters look at this and have thought that this was found and fulfilled in Hezekiah. But when you look at the way this, this, this man is described, he can be no, no one else, no other king, no other ruler, no one else that has ever lived except the one who came on Easter day. I mean, on Christmas day. And if you, if you note what it says, for us, a child is born and then he goes on to say to us, a son is given. A son is given. Now note the difference. A child is born. A son is given. He could have said a son is born, but he doesn't. He says a son is given. 
And the reason for that, the son is given, is because he's getting at the giftedness of this. This is, this is really, when you think of Christmas and the whole idea of God giving us something, gifting us with something, that's what he's getting at here. That he's given us, this child, that he has given us as a son. And as a son given to us, I mean, it could be, it could be two ways that you could understand this. And I think both are, are, are right. This, the son that's spoken of here could be the son in the line of David, a son of David, because we're going to see in just a moment how he ultimately fulfills the, the promises of David. But also, when you just think about it for a moment, for us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. We also understand something, that this son that is given is the son of God, right? I mean, not just the son of David, but the son of God. And the reason I know that it's because when you look at the New Testament and the way that it, it, it speaks in fulfillment of these particular texts, and this one in particular, here's, here is exactly what the angel Gabriel said to Mary in announcing the birth of this child. Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. That's this child, the Son of God. When you think about it then, this king, this ideal king that's mentioned in this text, this ideal king that can do what no other king can do is both God and man, fully God, fully man. And this is, this is part of the reason why when we look at this text and the fulfillment of this text, we need to understand no one else fits this. No one else except this child that was born in Bethlehem. And in fact, the, 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 the divinity and the, and the humanity of this king, this ideal king, it's referenced further in this very text. When you, when you get the names here that he's described by, if you look at the last part of verse 6, and it says, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, right? Those, those names were probably never names that he was, he was called, actually, Jesus, just as in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, it talks about how he shall be named Emmanuel, God with us. So indication he was ever called Emmanuel. He's called Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ. But what these names do is they, they describe this is who this one is. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And when we come back and we look at this particular text and it says his name, singular, his name shall be all of this. Each aspect of this is really a description of, of his character, of who he is. Now, when scholars look at this, they, they debate how it, it's to be understood. And, and so you'll see some that look at these as individual things. You'll see some that look at this as laid out in a sentence. Most people, when looking at this, and this is the way I view it, we see pairings or couplings. And this is probably the way you've mostly heard this. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. What you may not have heard before is this, that each part of the pairings, each of these pairings, reflect both divinity and humanity. So then when you look at the first pairing, wonderful counselor, wonderful or wonder, that, that Hebrew word is a word that references only the mighty acts of God, the miraculous acts and workings of God. He is a wonder. Counselor speaks of his humanity, his wisdom and guidance and direction and shepherding his people that he would always do what is right. Wonderful counselor. 
mighty God. Mighty, it actually speaks to his humanity. They were mighty men, as you know, throughout the Old Testament. It speaks of strength and power that this king will have. He is a mighty God, which is his divinity, the Hebrew word El, which is always used in Isaiah to speak of the one true God. So this child will be that. Everlasting father. Everlasting speaks of his divinity, of course. He, without beginning, without end. That's what that means. The son of God is without beginning, without end. Jesus had a beginning, right? He was born in a time, right? Jesus was born, but he, the God-man, eternally will be at the, at the right hand of the father. And then everlasting father, this is one that actually can trick you up a little bit. And part of the reason it can trick you up is because we know of what the classic orthodox understanding of the Trinity is. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so we look at this and we think if this is in reference to Jesus, then why is he called father? Is the second person of the Trinity, the Son, actually the father? But wait, the way to understand this rightly is this, to recognize that father actually speaks to his humanity. And what it's, what it's doing is it's talking about Jesus and his fatherliness and his compassion towards his people. In other words, he's, he's not just our big brother. He's fatherly towards us. And he refers to his people like that. I mean, you, a couple of instances in Matthew 9, you may remember the, the paralytic Jesus healed. He called him son in Mark chapter 5. The woman who for 12 years had the issue of blood and she touched his garment. Remember that? Remember what he says to her? Daughter, your faith has made you well. He is an everlasting father. And then all of these ultimately lead to the last one of these because as we've talked from the very beginning, we've talked about war and peace. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Prince, prince is, is his, his humanity. He is royalty in the line of David. But he is this prince that will usher in peace. Peace. Now, when we're talking about peace here, we're talking about something that goes beyond what the world talks about. When the world talks about peace, it talks about, and this is the longing, and you hear it all the time. I was just, I, I was just getting some Christmas cards in the store, and you see it. I mean, you still see this, peace on earth. Here's how the world thinks about peace. It is the absence of conflict, Right? And so in, in the war in Gaza, they just had recently a ceasefire, right? And when there's a ceasefire, well, you can look at that and go, well, maybe they are peace. All of us knew that. And of course, no, they weren't, right? It's just, they just stopped killing each other for a minute. And then they went right back to doing it again. Okay? Peace isn't an absence of conflict. In fact, it's so much more than that. He is the prince of shalom which is the word that entails everything good, wholeness, well-being, prosperity, goodness, beauty, rightness, all of these things. That's what he's saying. He's the prince of all of that, of what peace really is. Now, now here's the thing we have to think about. If he is the prince of that, of shalom, shalom, if he brings shalom to the world, then we have to go deeper and say, okay, how does he do that? And he does it, by actually going to the ultimate source of the problem, which no person, no other king, no other leader, no other nation, no one can do. Which is what? To get at the source of hostility. 
And that lies in us. And our hostility towards God. And our hatred against him. And our rebellion. And as a result of that, and I want you to hear me say this, okay? Because I don't know if we think this enough, but it's true. Because of our hostility and anger towards God, God, even though he is, there's, there's common grace and he, he's, he sustains, he does. But there is a, a hostility of God towards us because we have turned against him. That's what wrath is. His wrath is against all creation. Okay. Well, that's a problem. And that's a bigger war than any other war, is it not? I don't care what the war is. Even if it were a global war, world war, this is a bigger war. And there is no answer to this outside of this Prince of Peace. Because what he does is he walks right between it, doesn't he? And he takes all of our, all of our hostility, sin, rejection of God upon himself. And he faces all of God's wrath and anger justly so upon him. So that we can have peace. But again, don't mistake it. This isn't this sort of just universal peace that because Jesus has done this, everybody has peace. In Luke chapter, chapter 2, in verse 14, this is when the angels speak to the shepherds. And notice what they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Now, how many Christmas cards have you seen that ended right there? How many acknowledgments of Christmas peace have you seen end right there? But what it says is among those with whom he is pleased. And of whom is he pleased? He's pleased with those who trust in the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. He's pleased with those who believe in him. He gives peace to those who trust in him. I'll remind you of another messianic, this is a messianic psalm, it's Psalm 2, it's a great psalm. In fact, as I was reading it and thinking about it, I was like, I think I'm going to do this one next year. Um, but it's, it's this great psalm that talks about the nations raging against God, right? You remember that? And why do the nations rage, right? And how God laughs at them and mocks them. And this is true. All the raging of the nations against the one true living God. And God laughs. Because he has put a king on a throne. And what he tells them and what he tells us is kiss the son. Kiss the son. Submit to him. This king. And because of that submission to him, the king that Christmas proclaims, then that leads us to our second thing we can begin to see something of a kingdom that is very different than anything we have ever seen before. That he has inaugurated and will rule over the world's ideal kingdom. You know, in the second part of verse 6, it says this, and the government shall be on, upon his shoulders. I want you to notice the connections there because this is, this is like, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an oxymoron, but it points out a reality 
of, of something that we don't normally think about. I mean, it starts out for us, a child is born, a son is given, and the government is, is to be upon his shoulders. Why is that an oxymoron? It's kind of like, you know, an oxymoron is sort of like I don't know, jumbo shrimp or deafening silence, right? It's like when you have these paradoxical ideas, they don't seem to fit together. That's what he's doing here. That's what Isaiah is doing. He's saying, for us, a child, a child, and the government will be on his shoulders. That's what this is saying. Now, why would Isaiah go there? Well, the reason he's going there is because this is what, where we, all the rest of us go. This is where Israel went awry. This is where you and I go awry, is that we always think this, this kingdom that will be this great, wondrous thing, that it is brought about through the world's might and power and strength. And over and over again, God speaking through his prophets tells Israel it will will not happen that way. It will happen in a radically different way where there's a child and the whole of the government will be on his shoulders. And those shoulders are more than enough and more than sufficient to do what no regular, sinful, human Mighty man, strong man, big man, powerful man could ever do. And the government will be on his shoulders. Now what we see in verse 7 is we see what this rule is going to look like, right? And if you notice in the first part of it, it talks about how comprehensive this is. It goes on to say, of the increase of his government, first part of verse 7, and of peace, there will be no end. You know, increase it helps me to kind of process and think about the, the way this is happening and, and, and what's going on. And, and you know, when, when we think about government and when we think about Christ and the, the government will be on his shoulders, I think it's, it's very important that we, that we don't just spiritualize this, that we don't privatize this, that we recognize that this does not look like the world, but this is basically declaring this, the whole world will be made new. All that the world is will rest under his rule. This world, this world that is made up of this stuff, it will all be made new. And he will reign and rule over it. But it won't look like anything you've ever seen before. He says here, the increase of the government. Now, when you think about that increase, it's going to increase. And one of the ways that I think we need to consider this and the point puts it like this, that my point I'm making, he's inaugurated, is that with the coming of this child into the world, what has come? What has come into the world with the coming of this child? Do you know the kingdom of God has come? That the kingdom of God is here. That the kingdom of God is at work, right? And this kingdom is increasing. It's, it's growing. Now, how does that happen? Well, I, here's how it happens. Now, all of us may look at this and go, well, that doesn't seem to be very much. It's happening through, through preaching and sharing the gospel. It's happening through believing the gospel. It's happening through people who believe the gospel and believe in King Jesus, living for King Jesus, standing for King Jesus, expressing what it means to be a part of this kingdom. And this is, it's growing, you know that? It, it, it's not just about Israel, it's about the world and it's moving through the missionary movement of the world. It's moving and going broad. And then one day, what does it say? This rule and this peace will be manifest in a way where there is no end to it. Right? 
There will be no end. It will have everything. Everything. It's comprehensive. It's also covenantal, which means that this is all a fulfillment of what God is doing throughout history and how he relates to his people. If you look at the second part of verse 7, it says of the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. What, what he's doing there is he's saying that this child that is to come actually will be the fulfillment of the covenant promises made to David in 2 Samuel 7 of a king that will sit eternally on his throne. This is this child. And we, we see that. I mean, when you think of what, what, uh, what the angel Gabriel says to Mary, Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33, listen to the words. This is exactly this. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So this kingdom that Jesus has, it's comprehensive and it's it's rule and it's peace, it's covenantal, it's fulfillment of the promises that God has made to his people. But then the last thing we see here is that it will happen, but not through us. Notice the end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. It is all about his controlling power, his zeal for this world and his people. And God will do it. The reminder that Israel constantly got was trust in your God. He will do this. And the reminder that I want to give to all of us today is that same reminder I know when we approach Christmas, we come to Christmas this year, and you just got to open your eyes and look around. I mean, all these global problems, look around, there's all these national problems. Look around in your own home, maybe there are family problems and individual problems, and you go, how, how in the world, in the midst of all of this, can I even think about peace and justice and righteousness and all of these things? And I am certain Israel felt that. I'm certain they did. And Isaiah comes to them and basically says, a child is going to be born. And, and guess what? It didn't happen for 700 years. Lord, have mercy. God's time is very different than ours. And God's time is always the right time. And our place is to believe him. Trust them. The evil one is constantly going to be putting in front of you. Go this way, go that way, trust this, whatever, that thing, whatever. We do it all the time. And we think God must not be on his throne. But I'm telling you, brothers and sisters in Christ, this Christmas, this child, this child king, he is enthroned. And he is doing his work. And just as Isaiah is saying to them, by speaking as if it has already happened, I'm going to speak to you as if it has already happened. The hope is just on the horizon, and there is nothing, nothing, nothing that can stop it because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it because this child is born. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for Jesus for his coming into the world, for his victory and rule as king, and for what that means. Help us, Lord, to depend upon you 
and trust in you and live faithfully for you, to you. And Lord, watch you do the work. Help us to trust. Help us to depend, whatever our circumstances may be, that you are more than enough for all of our needs. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we join in singing what child